Tell me if you agree with the following statements. Relationships are demanding. Relationships are hard work. Relationships oftentimes are messy. Agree with these statements? Though we all on our better days strive to maintain unity and peace in our relationships, inevitably we are going to run into, step into disagreement and conflict. And we, you know this is true from your life, right? We have an uncanny ability to offend and be offended. There, there are none of our relationships are immune from friction and failure. Think about it. Brothers and sisters. Co-workers, inferiors, and superiors. Husbands and wives. Classmates and roommates. There is always this opportunity for conflict. And so we would probably agree that we are in great need of knowing how to navigate these relationships, especially when they are messy, especially when they fracture and fail. How are we to respond? We find ourselves in need of great forgiveness and also in great need of extending forgiveness to others. And that is exactly what our passage is going to teach us this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 18, uh, studying verses 21 through 35 this morning. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and we'll start in verse 21. That's page 823 in the Bibles that we provided for you there under the chairs. Now, you will see here in this passage that there's a short discussion between Peter and Jesus, and then there is another parable. This is actually the third parable we've looked at since we opened on Sundays on April 10th. And so Jesus speaks these parables, these stories that by way of analogy teach spiritual truths and lessons about the kingdom of God. And we know that the kingdom of God really refers to the saving reign of God. And what we're going to find this morning in this parable is that the kingdom radically reorients the way that we relate to one another. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to teach us in Matthew chapter 18. So if you would, read verses 21 and 22 with me of Matthew 18. Here we go. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Times, or excuse me, 70 times 7, the ESV says. So we see already in verse 21 that Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him this question. Now, now the question that we should ask is, where does this question come from? Well, in the previous verses, Jesus has just unpacked how that we should relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. And Jesus understands there is going to be messy relationships among us. We are going to offend and be offended. And so when you are offended, Jesus says, this is how you handle it. Okay, we're going to talk about a variety of ways we oftentimes handle it, but, but this is how you should handle it. You should go to that person and you should talk to them about it. You should even confront them about it in love, with humility, seeing the log in your own eye, and you should seek restoration. 
If the person fails to repent, fails to be reconciled with you, then bring two or three others to come and seek restoration among the relationship. And then if there is still no repentance on that person's part, then tell it to the whole church. Okay, this is where we get the idea of church discipline in the church. Not a lot of, some, a lot of churches don't practice it, but, but we will. And, and why? It's not to expose, you know, that's not the motivation. The primary motivation is to expose each other's sin. I mean, the primary motivation is that we would seek restoration and reconciliation with one another and, of course, with our great God. So this is the, the, the impetus for Peter's questions. Jesus talked about reconciliation in, in our relationships. And so Peter asked a great question. Well, well, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Wow. Peter, you're so generous. You have such a, a loving... I mean, surely Peter thinks that he's reached the height of love and forgiveness here. Because the rabbis in his day said, you know, three times should cut it. So you do the math. I mean, Peter has more than doubled the kind of accepted amount. And so Peter is shocked when Jesus says to him in verse 22, I did not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Some translations say 77 times. The, the, the issue is not the number. It's not as if Jesus would say, okay, Peter, on the 78th offense, on the 491st offense, you're off the hook of forgiveness. The point is, is that we would be willing to constantly extend forgiveness. That we would even offer unlimited forgiveness. Now, that is not without qualification, for certainly there needs to be repentance on the part of the person who offended. But Jesus teaches this parable to bring home this point, that we must extend forgiveness in light of God's radical and measureless forgiveness toward us. Now don't, don't miss that. We must extend forgiveness in light of God's radical and measureless forgiveness toward us. Let's look at this parable that Jesus tells and let's read verses 23 through 27 together. This is what Jesus says. Here's the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So immediately we find that there is a king. When you see king here, we should think God. This is, uh, Jesus is telling this story, an analogy, to teach us something of the kingdom of God. And so he says, there's a king who goes to settle accounts with his servants, and there is one who owes 10,000 talents. Now, we ask the question, is that much money? Is that great value in that day? That is an inestimable sum. A talent, you may have a footnote if your Bible is like mine, a talent would be worth roughly 20 years of wages for a common laborer in that day. 
10,000 of those talents. I mean, if you calculate that out, that's roughly $6 billion in today's currency. It's a debt that would be impossible to pay off. And this is what we see in verse 25. It says, and since he could not pay, there are grave consequences to this. There's no way that the servant can pay the debt. And so he responds in verse 26 by falling on his knees, begging the master, the king, to have patience with him. I mean, he even makes this impossible promise, does he not? I mean, he says, I'll, I'll pay off everything. I mean, he could not pay off everything in a thousand lifetimes. He makes an irrational, irrational promise. And in verse 27, we see this unbelievable response from the king. Look at this. It says, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. See, the king was compassionate against all expectation. There was no obligation on the part of the king to forgive him this great debt. But Jesus used the word, it says, that he was deeply moved with pity. And he extends this astonishing mercy and grace to this servant. And I'm so glad to tell you this morning that this tells us something of the character of our God. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, Moses has been leading the people, this is the context, Moses has been leading the people of Israel uh, to the promised land. And the people of Israel continue to rebel against Moses, and God is kind of heated at his people. He is upset with them, and he, and he, and he says, look, I'm not even going to continue on with these people. If you're going to leave them, Moses, you're going to go by yourself. And Moses, with boldness, says, God, if you're not going, I'm not moving. And then he makes this even greater request. He says, show me your glory. No one's ever seen the face of God. No one's been in the presence of, physically in the presence of God. And so God says, look, if I pass in front of you and, and face you, it's just going to be consuming for you. And so I'm going to do you a favor, and you can just hide in this cleft of the rock, and, and I'll pass by, and you can see my back. I mean, could Moses have even absorb the glory of God and continue to live? I mean, that's a great question to ask. But, but, but look at this. It says that when the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he's, he proclaimed this, revealing his character, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The forgiveness of God is rooted in his character. He's a merciful God. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. His steadfast love continues for thousands and thousands of generations. This is what moves him to forgive. So we ask the question, what is forgiveness? We could define it as such. Re forgiveness involves releasing someone 
of his or her liability to suffer punishment or penalty for their offense. It is releasing someone of their debt, their penalty or punishment that they should be liable for. And this is exactly what the king does for this servant who has such an immeasurable debt. Notice that the king does not excuse his debt. I mean, we are so prone to want to excuse our debt, our sin before God, right? And and not only that, we are even prone to not only wanting to excuse our own sin, but also excusing the sin of others. Someone wrongs you, and they have the courage, the humility to come to you and say, I'm sorry, I blew it. And you're tempted to say, it's okay. Oh, you, what you did wasn't wrong. It's, it's no big deal. And I'm sure there's something you know, good-hearted behind that. But the reality is, is, it's an offense. There's a wrong. We're not to excuse our sin. We are to see our sin, own our sin, recognize our sin, and then repent of our sin, which means we change our mind, we change our action and heart, and we live differently. And when we are wronged, we should acknowledge the sin. And then we should be ready to extend forgiveness. So let's know something very carefully here. There is a distinction between having a forgiving spirit and actually extending forgiveness. Jesus on the cross gives us a great example of a forgiving spirit. You remember what he said, right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a forgiving spirit, but forgiveness truly happens when the offender acknowledges their offense and comes and repents. That's when we're able to extend forgiveness. So I want us to take a couple of moments and think about our lives before the King of heaven and earth. Jesus tells this parable to give us an idea of how God relates to people. The first encouragement for us this morning is to recognize the radical forgiveness that you've received from God. Do you recognize the radical forgiveness? If, if you are in Christ, if you believed in Christ, received forgiveness from God, do you realize how radical it is? You see, I think that we will fail to recognize how radical God's forgiveness is until we see the enormity of our indebtedness. Or I'll put that another way. We will fail to see how radical God's forgiveness is until we see the nature and the depth of our sin. What is the nature of our sin? The nature of our sin is this, that every single offense... Every time we've failed to live up to God's standard, which I think we would all agree are many, it is an offense to an infinitely holy God. We have all, the Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is so perfectly glorious, perfectly holy, that every one of our sins is an infinite offense against him. That's the nature of our sin. What about the depth of your sin. Let me just think about this with me. What about this week? How many times have you failed to live up 
to God's expectation and standard for your life. What about this month? How many times have you sinned against God and sinned against someone else, consequently sinning against God even in those moments? What about your year? How many times have you failed to live up to God's standard and sinned against God? What about your life? The number of times your heart has been filled with lies and greed and pride and jealousy and covetousness and impure thoughts, lust, impatience, drunkenness, and the list could go on and on and on. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times we have offended God. And we start to see the depth of our sin. If we were to take any one of our sin, any one, my sin, weigh it on a scale, we would find that the weight of that sin would absolutely be crushing. And yet, Psalm 130, verse 3, look, look at this. And even that idea is reflected in the words of the psalmist. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is, no one, no one could stand before God if he were to mark all of our iniquities. But, verse 4 says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There is forgiveness in the heart of God. And I pray you know that for all of your sin, every single one of your sins, over the course of your whole life, your past, present, and future sin, there is forgiveness in the heart of God. For those of us who know Christ, we have been granted more forgiveness than we will ever be able to extend. And, and what's the reason, O oh, psalmist, why do you, that you may be praised, that you may be loved, that you may be adored? Is that what the text says? That you may be feared. You say, Tanner, that kind of sounds weird. That sounds scary. What is that about? Fear in the Old Testament means respect. It means to have a reverential awe of God where we love him so much, we, we uh, respect him so much, we see how awesome he is that we would want to do nothing but live our lives in a manner that pleases him. And this is exactly what we would expect to find in the parable. But to our great shock and amazement, we find the opposite to be true. Read verses 28 through 30 with me, and this is what happens when that forgiven servant leaves the presence of the king. Check this out. Verse 28, But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, 
and I will pay you. And the forgiven servant refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. You see in verse 28, there is that tragic word, but. Jesus uses this intentionally to draw a stark contrast between what he has just pictured in the forgiveness of the king and what is about to happen. He, may, he leaves no room for doubt. He says that same servant, this, this same, we should call him now the forgiven servant. What does he do? He goes and now he finds himself in the opposite position. He is now the one who is still has a debt lingering that someone owes him. And so it says that he goes and he finds him out. And he doesn't just say, hey, buddy, when are you going to you know, ante up and pay me your debt? It says that he goes and he wraps his hands around his neck and begins to choke him and screams, pay what you owe. Do you see the picture Jesus is painting for us? I mean, this is the same helpless beggar who now, in a matter of moments, has become the hardened boss. His hands that were stretched out pleading for forgiveness are now wrapped around the neck of a fellow peer. And this is absolutely absurd. What could be more hypocritical than this? How does the story end? Well, let's read verses 31 to the end of the chapter. It says this, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus ends the parable by saying this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. You see what's going on here. The, 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 there are some other servants who see what happened. They go back and, and Jesus says they don't spare any details. You remember that great debt that he owed 10,000? You remember that? You, you forgave him of that debt and then he goes in this small sum. I mean, yeah, 100 days wages, that was a lot of money, but in comparison, the, it's microscopic in value. And he says, yeah, he, he went and he found that servant. He put his hands around his neck. He choked him. He demanded it. And then, and then when he couldn't pay, he threw him in prison. What a great insult and offense to the king. I mean, can you see the, the temperature rising in the heart of the king? I just extended mercy and forgiveness. And an immeasurable amount, astonishing mercy and grace and forgiveness to the servant. And he has gone and done the opposite of what I've just done for him. The warning in verses 34 and 35 could not be louder. If we fail 
to forgive, like this unforgiving servant, this forgiven, forgiven, unforgiving servant. What happens is Jesus says this, if that's in your heart, you who have been forgiven so much, if this is in your heart, then you are showing that you do not belong to the great God of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. If you are unable to forgive your brother from the heart. Now you ask the question, Tanner, what is this, like the unpardonable sin? No. What Jesus is saying is that it should be the impulse of a believer in God who has had such a great debt removed and forgiven to extend forgiveness to others. If we fail to do that and fail consistently in that, then as evidence, clear and serious evidence that we never belong to God in the first place. I hope you see what Jesus is driving at all throughout the parable. He is saying that our vertical forgiveness, the forgiveness that we receive from God, should necessarily translate into us being ready to forgive and extend forgiveness horizontally. We who have been forgiven so much, how could we not turn around and extend forgiveness to those who offend us? It's much less offense. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always easy. It doesn't mean that the wound is necessarily removed. But it does get at what God's heart is for us. That we who have received mercy would extend that same mercy to others. I mean, the point of this whole parable, Jesus is saying, he's asking the question through a story. He's saying, have you been forgiven? Then forgive. Ken Sandy says this. He says, Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. I mean, do you struggle to forgive a family member, a friend who is driven a deep wound into your heart? What about that coworker that seems like there's something to forgive them of every single day? Do you struggle to forgive them? Here's a great gospel question to ask yourself. Is their sin against me more grievous and appalling than my sin against God? answer is no every time. So when we realize the great debt that we have been forgiven of by God, we will be in a position to live out the command of, the implicit command of verse 35, to forgive from our hearts. This is what Christ calls us to do. This is how Life in the kingdom radically reorients our relationships. We've been asking the question, why does Jesus matter? I mean, does he matter? Does he matter today? Does he matter for our lives? And we've explored a variety of ways that he matters for our priorities, for the way that we spend our, our nine to five, for when we face suffering. He matters in all cases, and he certainly matters for our relationships. 
But then we ask the question, well, what is, practically, what does this look like? What does true forgiveness look like? Let me give you four promises that Ken Sandy, he wrote a book called The Peacemaker. He, he says that forgiveness is willing to make four promises. Listen to these very carefully. Number one, forgiveness, true forgiveness will say, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident, this, this sin, this offense. You see, this undercuts the type of forgiveness that says, oh, I forgive you, but I'm going to continue to dwell and think about your sin, your offense toward me, to the point that it just fills my life with bitterness and resentment. I mean, have you been there? Have you been unable to shake an offense toward you? See, when we're wronged, we are tempted to become cold and distance, distant. You've probably experienced or distributed the silent treatment before, right? I mean, this is bad, especially when it's, you know, at home. This promise helps keep us from acting like, hey, everything is good on the outside, everything's cool, and yet on the inside we are grumbling and holding on to the person's offense. So true forgiveness says, I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. This undercuts the type of quote-unquote forgiveness that says, I forgive you, but I'm going to continue to hold this over your head in the future. And whenever you kind of cross the line again, I'm going to bring this back up and remind you of how many times you have offended me. And I hope that you're hearing the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 that says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it keeps no record of wrong. See, we're so tempted to remember the sins of others and bring them back up against them. And yet God does not do this with us. This is the joy of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, does this mean that God forgets our sin? Like God has divine amnesia? No. What it means is that God does not count our sins against us. He does not hold them against us in the future. This promise helps us from being vengeful. I mean, when we're wrong, I mean, what, what's our reaction? Oftentimes we're just ready to fire back. Get revenge. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. This undercuts the type of forgiveness. That says, I forgive you, but before, you know, I just like totally forgive you, I'm going to talk to like every person that I can find about this. I mean, I mean, is this any better than, this is like adult tattletale syndrome, right? Someone offends you, and, you know, I'm going to go tell this person. I'm going to get on the phone and call this person and share gossip about, I'm going to get on my email account, and I'm going to fire off a few emails. You won't believe, and we do this, we spin this in a Christian way. You really need to pray for so-and-so. What do you mean? 
oh, well, you know, they seem to be struggling. They must not be doing their quiet time. I mean, well, how do you know that? Well, let me tell you what happened yesterday. And then, bam, we're off. True forgiveness does not bring it up before others. And then, finally, number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. This undercuts the type of forgiveness that would say, I forgive you, but we cannot be as close as we once were. True forgiveness, the goal of forgiveness is to restore the relationship, to renew the relationship. This is exactly what happens between us and God, and this is exactly what needs to happen between us and others. This is so important for the church. I mean, I hate to kind of burst your bubble. We're a young church. We're kind of, a lot of us are just kind of getting to know one another here. But you know what? We are going to offend one another. It's only a matter of time. So it's the fruit of the Spirit producing a forgiving spirit and helping us to be ready to extend forgiveness that will keep our church unified when we do have friction and relationships do fail. Because they will. I hope that you will buy into these four principles because they get at the heart of true forgiveness. Ken Sandy's wife, to help teach this to children, she wrote this little poem. So if you have kids, you might want to write this down for them. She says this, Good thought, hurt you not. Gossip never, friends forever. Good thought, I will not dwell on this soon. Hurt you not, I won't hold it against you. Gossip never, I won't talk about this to others, friends forever, there doesn't have to be a lasting rub in the relationship. Now you might find that a little cheesy, as I do, (laughs) but it's pretty good. And it's a great way to teach kids about true forgiveness. So let me encourage you, I know, I mean, there's a great chance that many of you have already thought about that person in your life. That friend, that family member, that coworker that just rubs you wrong, they've offended you, and there needs to be some forgiveness taking place there. This is a great way to display and to dis- declare the gospel to that person. Perhaps they're not a follower of Christ. You have an opportunity in the way that you interact with them to reflect how God has forgiven you. He doesn't hold your sin against you. He doesn't continue to bring it up. He doesn't expose our sin to the whole world like he could. And he restores our relationship rightly. So let me ask you, who in your life do you need to grant a forgiving spirit toward? Is there anyone in your life that's come to you and said, hey, I've blown it, I'm really sorry, and you've kind of just given them the silent treatment? Is there anyone that you need to extend forgiveness to? In light of the gospel, there is no offense too great that we should be unwilling to forgive. So in closing, let me put this thought out there. There may be some of us in this room who have never experienced radical forgiveness from God. Maybe today, before today, you didn't even know that it was possible. I mean, that Jesus really, like on the cross, he like really 
did that work so that I might be reconciled to God? Not just like hopefully one day if I like pray enough and other people pray for me enough that I could receive this forgiveness and reconciliation with God. I mean, Jesus died on the cross for our sin to give us new life, to give us total forgiveness and find life in him. So if you've never decided to follow God in a clear and radical way, then I want to plead with you, don't wait any longer. I mean, make the decision like right now. God wants to have a perfect, perfectly reconciled relationship with you. Others of us just need to allow God to work a more forgiving spirit into our heart. This is where our meta-memo verse comes in. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Have you received forgiveness from God? Then extend that same forgiveness to others. This is the power of Christian hope. The power of Christian hope teaches us this. The gospel provides radical forgiveness from God and radical grace that enables us to forgive others from the heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these great words from Jesus and how they honestly expose us. Lord, for surely all of us, when we think about our life, we know that we have an immeasurable debt before you. You are the great king of all things. You're the king of our lives, and yet we often live as if you are unable and unwilling to forgive. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convince us of your great love and mercy and grace to forgive us all of our sin. And, Father, I pray that we would reflect the gospel in the way that we relate to others and be quick to forgive when we are wronged and offended. Lord, help us to worship you. Help us to reflect on the gospel and let that motivate our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.